Khan always has something to say relative to education. I think the fact that so many people have opinions and perspectives on the schools is wonderful. Ladies and gem gentlemen, welcome to Leading Education, and I am Jeff Rose, and today is going to be an, an incredible uh, opportunity for us to talk with really an amazing and impressive leader at such an important time. I have been doing this series, as you may have been following, on reopening this COVID chaos, as I've mentioned it. I started, I would say, um, a few weeks ago, describing my perspective on what is happening, some of the opportunities and challenges. I had Dan Gordon on the last time, who is in D.C., who gave this kind of national landscape to how things are going. And today I have a really incredible guest, Dr. Marcise Beasley, who currently serves as superintendent of Clayton County Public Schools. And prior to being appointed superintendent, he served as the chief school improvement officer in Clayton County. He has over 25 years dedicated service towards instructional practices and has held numerous leadership positions in public education. Dr. Beasley leads one of the top 100 largest school districts in the fifth largest system in the state of Georgia with more than 55,000 diverse students, 7,300 employees, and $728 million general budget and nearly 70 learning sites and educational programs. Dr. Beasley is a recipient of Notable accolades, I'm not going to mention all of them, but we'd be here too long, and multiple recognitions by numerous organizations. In addition to dedicating much of his life as a professional educator, Dr. Beasley enjoys recreational time with his wife and four children. He's also described as a dynamic leader in ministry, an amazing mentor, a notable author, and a strong supporter of the arts in a variety of social awareness causes. Welcome, Marcis. It's, it's great to have you with us today. I'm glad to be with you, Jeff. I hope all is well. Yeah, all, all, all is as well as it can be, for sure. And I, I find myself often every every night, my family and I gather for dinner, and and you know, of course, we we pray over things. And one of the things that we talk about is how how blessed we are, knowing just the dramatic difficulties that people are facing right now. So no, I'm I'm doing well. And before I jump into questions, I want to ask you this one question: Four kids, Morsi's. Four? Four kids. Well, we we had our girls first, our oldest two, uh, and then we had twin boys. So my boys are twins. So I got two at one time, and it was at that point where we decided. The doctor told us, "Well, you know, you got twins on both sides. So if you try again, you may have you may have another set of twins." So it was at that time we said, "Okay, we'll be satisfied with four. <laughs> if if you're not satisfied with four. Also, you know, added to what you do on a day to day, then I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to ask you to get some help. Um, so I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm you glad need to ask me to do that too. That is, <laughs> I, I tell you, fortunately, you know, my kids are not in K-12 education. I have the girls that finish with college, and the boys they're in their senior year. Uh, but it's, it's even challenging at their level right now, as you can imagine. But yeah. no, they're good kids, and and we love them, and and we're glad we had them. <laughs> Well, it makes you, it makes you, it makes you a busy man. And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you and the audience very specifically why um, my motivation for having you with us. And number one, of course, I know you. And as you know, past fellow superintendents, when I was in Fulton, 
I've I've always really been impressed with the the narrative that that you weave, uh, and I really appreciate most most specifically that that you're bold. Uh, this COVID series, as I described, I think it's going to be extremely helpful for people to hear from a superintendent, someone truly in the trenches, making just difficult decisions with so many consequences on on either side and. This AJC article that came out, I think it was titled Clayton Superintendent Navigates Difficult Times. And by the way, I didn't like the title. I loved the article, and I'll, I'll tell you why. The, the, the title was a little bit superficial relative to the content of the article. And what I loved about it is this. I am watching throughout the country, not just superintendents, but educational leaders, um, really struggle uh, because the work is hard and no matter what the decisions have so many consequences and there is not an easy answer and there's no playbook to any of this um, but this article on you I think really highlighted the the impressive impact that leaders make and and it mentioned how hard the job is but I was so thrilled that it, it came across so well as opposed to slam or a leader when they are only trying to do the right work. So what an, what an impressive article. When I read that, I thought, I have to give this guy a call and I have to get him on a podcast. And thank you so much for coming. And let me just ask you this. So our listeners being parents and teachers and other educational leaders, what did I miss, Morcise, in introducing you? I mean, that's just basic stats. What would you want people to know about you that I didn't mention? If I had to highlight anything that I think is important for parents and all to hear, you know, I am, I am, I am them. I am that parent. I, I, I my four kids came through public uh, K twelve education. I, I, I have the same aspirations that they do. The same concerns the same values and beliefs, uh, the the same uh, anxieties, if you will, that they have. And I understand where they are relative to their children's education and how this could impact their, the, the lives or how it is impacting the lives of their children. So if nothing else, I want them to know that, you know, we're kindred. We're all kindred spirit. We're, we're alike. And, and and while I may be in this role, I've not always been in this role. I have been uh, a dad, a mom with kids at the elementary, middle, and high school levels. Uh, my children were in school during 9-11. Uh, so not only was I an administrator, but I was also dealing with the, the implications of that major event. So I just want them to know that I totally understand, totally get it, and while this situation is unprecedented. They have to know that we're here to walk with them on this journey, uh, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the, I, I call it the drama, the inconsistency. We're, we're going to work with our parents. And notice I said work with our parents to make the right decisions for our children. And I will tell you that everything I know about you, and as it mentioned, even in this really great article on Sunday, the good news is I, I think when people are reflective and, and maybe calm, that, that they would see that. Um, and then that's a, that's a compliment to you. Um, I have two children. Uh, one's a senior and one's a freshman. 
and this is tricky, and I know that you're facing the same things in terms of, you know, their experience as seniors uh, in high school, I believe you said. So um, I like... Oh, okay, so are they in school now? Are they going back? Uh, yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, online. <laughs> <laughs> are, 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 they, are they home with you? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so leader to leader, right? How, how are you doing? So, you know, we'll, we'll get into, of course, the, the work, but, you know, how are you doing amidst this unprecedented COVID challenge? Well, I appreciate the question. I think I'm doing okay. I, I think I have my moments because as you can imagine, this is a very, a very demanding and, and, and highly stressful time for school leaders. Um, the decisions that we have to make are so impactful. The criticism is endless. <laughs> the, the, concern, the concerns that you have and the, the issues, you don't have solutions for, and then the context of, of the way the country has responded to this or is responding to this pandemic so inconsistently, um, it makes it for a very stressful time as a, as a leader. So um, I find myself trying to sleep well at night, but I can assure you that I probably hadn't slept as well since this pandemic than I normally would have. Would you would you expand a little bit on, you know, that inconsistency? I, I mean, I'm asking you that because I'm I'm agreeing with you and probably find myself uh, pretty frustrated with that, um, wanting for us as a country to handle this together. Right? Let, let's let's. Let's handle this together. And sometimes it doesn't feel like that. That's my opinion. But can you expand a little bit more on that inconsistency piece? Well, I'll share with you, Jeff, what I shared with the U.S. Uh, Department of Public Health yesterday as they interviewed uh, about us about our response to the pandemic, Clayton County's response. I share with them that as a school leader, and I think I represent school leaders at, at the local but at the district level, and I sit at many tables, as you well know, our decisions or decision to reopen schools, that decision has been complicated because at the federal, the state levels in particular, there is a lack of consistent messaging, a lack of using data consistently, a lack of benchmarks, that school systems and superintendents and boards of education can use to basically say, well, if the data is here, we're in a good place to open, albeit with some risk, but we're in a good place and we have the data to substantiate that. But right now there's no willingness, it, it, it appears from my perspective at the federal or state level of anyone to, to definitively to definitively state, here's the benchmark data. If we want to reopen, this is what we need to see with the posit a test positive rate. We need to see uh, all three uh, local, state, and national data trending downward. No one's willing to say, to state that and to and to use that as a, a guiding uh, benchmark to make decisions or to say 
declaratively, we're going to open our schools if the data is right here uh, based upon the last month or 14 days. And that is very, very, very frustrating when you want children to come back to school. They need to come back to school face to face, but no one is willing to, to exceed the politics, if you will, and make a scientifically based research driven decision. And, so, and that, that is, that's very disappointing when, especially for us who are educators, who we really believe in research and making data driven decisions is very disappointing to see that our children are in the middle in the, you know, especially as we advocate criticality, critical thinking in our school systems, but we're looking in our nation and there seems to be a shortage of critical, critical thinking. Yeah. A, a shortage indeed. In fact, the last two podcasts I've had, I have waxed and waned a bit relative to my frustration that sometimes uh, political perspectives um, override what we know as um, important data uh, that we look at and use to make decisions and do so consistently. Um, yeah. So how is it, so you know, you, your job as a leader, how are you navigating the way, the weight and pressures of like three factors, politics, right? And that plays a role, science and data, what we know as some facts, and then your community needs as a leader and every community is sometimes a bit different. So how do, how do you manage those three factors to come up with your messaging as well as your decisions and explanation or narrative of those decisions? You know, kind of what's your um, internal or external strategy with that? I'll tell you the the the, the last the, the latter two, the community and the data are the are the factors that drive me the most. I I deal with the politics, but I tend to be less political, and I spend more time interacting with the community, looking at the data, and working with the community to come up with a strategy a response that we all can live with. So I, I really believe in democracy. I do believe that as a, a leader, uh, a K-12 educational leader, it's my responsibility to help people come, uh, come to the table, look at the data, facilitate the conversation, and see what we can do to land in a in a good place with a good decision that all of us are willing to live with. So I think I spend more time with the latitude, working with the community, looking at the data, which I think helps with dealing with the politics. And my community seems to support first being engaged because these are their children and they want to be engaged but they also understand the importance of grounding our decisions in data that informs our decisions. And so we seem to be leaning toward those two variables. And then the politics, we deal with that, but it's very difficult to allow the politics to take you down a role that is not going to produce good fruit. As long as you're working with your community, you're making decisions grounded in the data and you're working collaboratively. It's not a Dr. Beasley's decision. It's our decision. It's, it's, it's so true. And I've, I've often said that, you know, superintendents 
Um, sometimes, or if you are an even assistant superintendent, CFOs of school districts, etc., they're not politicians, but they they have to navigate and play politics, right? So no one elects you, right? You're appointed. However, the the politics of your community, uh, the state, the federal level, they land in your office every day, right? So if you can, as you describe, stay true to yourself and what you know is best for, you know, our community, meaning yours, I, I think that I appreciate you upholding that as, as your guide um, in, in all of this. I think, I think that's wise. Yeah, I think, Jeff, I think it's so important to remind ourselves, especially during a global pandemic that has placed this country due to our response or lack of response disproportionately in the wrong place relative to the percentage of the percentage of infections and the percentage of those who are, who are who have died because of the virus but i do think it's a good point a good time in our history to remind ourselves that we are a democracy and that it's a value that should exist during a pandemic and that needs to exist well beyond this pandemic and so this pandemic, in my opinion, provides us an opportunity to work with the people. We're not, you know, sometimes our institutions are very bureaucratic. Uh, you have professional individuals and there seems to be this anti-institutional, anti-bureaucratic relationship with the public. And it's just been important to me and to our administration and Clayton and our Board of Education that we are not working against the public, but we're working with the public because these are our children. And we want to navigate this situation that impacts all of us, not some of us, but all of us. So we've been very intentional about framing our reopening options in our decisions in a manner that everyone understands that it's not about one group against another group, parents against teachers or teachers against administrators it's about a decision that is good for all of us working with all of us to come to that decision and that's just been very important to do especially during this pandemic so so i'm going to ask the the listeners to it, maybe rewind a bit because if if you were to take your answer and you know almost count the number of times that you used our and all of us um, I'll tell you, Marcis, that's inspiring. And when you say our children, I know you are truly referring to your children that, you know, you you influence because they are part of, you know, your collective system. And so I, I just think that's commendable. And I, I want to shift and talk about equity. Um, you know, amidst this COVID chaos, we're experiencing this awakening, all right, a movement that I got to say, I, I'm actually thrilled about uh, relative to racial inequity and injustice. And uh, I want to ask you, what is your perspective and hopes for the future based upon the, the strife that we see right now? I'm a very hopeful person and I love history, Jeff. So I look at the current situation through the lens of history. And I'll tell you, this is a place that we've been here. We've been here before. And I see it as an opportunity to move us closer toward being that more perfect union. 
a lot of the inequities that we see that are being highlighted during this pandemic, they have been in existence, but I think we got very comfortable with those inequities. Well, the pandemic has uh, not only highlighted them, but it's, it's put those inequities in our face so close that we are having to have conversations and beyond conversations, we're having to think deeply about what are some of the policies, the laws, or, or the actions that we need to take in order to change these outcomes? And so while, of course, it, you know, the, the unrest, the, 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 the protest, they make us somewhat uncomfortable at times, I think that we're at a, a, a pertinent and necessary time in our history, but it's a, it's a hopeful time in that I believe as we dealt with issues in the past and we became a better nation, I believe we're dealing with these issues today and we're going to be better in all the areas that we are grappling with, whether it be educational equity, whether it be equity relative to our criminal justice system, whether it be equity relative to income levels, um, when it comes to essential workers, I see an opportunity. And I don't want us to lose that opportunity to educate children, to lift communities, but to perpetuate, if you will, our democracy. This is our time. You know, we're a very young nation. I have to remind ourselves, we're a very young nation among among the the, the nation. And and sometimes we're a bit harder on ourselves than we sh than we should be. And sometimes we're too lax on ourselves. Uh, so I see this as our moment as a nation to grapple with some things in history, the impact of those decisions, but to make some decisions going forward that would help to, if you will, mitigate for a lot of those decisions that we may have made or refused to make in our history. Uh, it, is, it is an opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity. In fact, clearly, you know, when, when during this pandemic, um, really it's added you know, a lot of anxiety and flames to a lot of topics. Um, but this one specifically, um, I almost feel thankful that um, this is right now um, so turbulent because I, I think it sets us up, um, creates a sense of urgency that for some reason sometimes gets sleepy and it shouldn't, right? This, like you said, this is, what what is happening? What we're noticing right now is not new, right? It's not new. Um, if any any self aware or person who I think you know keeps their eyes open, a critical thinker, should have seen this prior to, you know, these really traumatic events. But you and, know, Jeff, one, one piece of data that should that should allow and awaken all of us would be, we're only what, less than 4% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the, the virus cases and 25% of the world's death. If that right there doesn't help us to realize, okay, America, we call ourselves the, the land of the, the free and brave and the, the, the city, that the nation that sits on a hill that cannot be hid, but we've got smaller, less resource nations navigating this pandemic more successfully than we are. If that's not a wake up call for us to address all of these issues that we've alluded to, I don't know what will be a wake up call for us. Well, and you mentioned the wake up call of, you know, the pandemic. Think of 
Think of some of the things that have happened in the last number of months here relative to this, these racial injustices that have happened. It has actually created a worldwide discourse. Um, and I, I find that to be fascinating, right? We're a young country. Um, and in the meantime, um, what's happening here, not just, you know, which is kind of this really challenging health crisis, but also the conversation that we're having relative to race and poverty is happening throughout the world because of things that have occurred in the last few months here in the United States. Um, and, you know, I will, I'm not always going to be a, just a daily optimist, but I, I can keep hope at the end of the story that this, in fact, will create an opportunity as you described. So I'm thankful to hear you describe it. I don't know if you know this, but I, I shared a presentation with the Georgia administrators, uh, educators, uh, educational leaders, Association of Educational Leaders, Gale, and I discussed about creating uh, just educational outcomes. And I went through a, a litany of data and, and really just had an honest conversation with them that was grounded in, in, in the, 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 the disparities, the gaps that exist by race in our country in so many different areas. I just believe, as you've already shared, that this is America's time to become that better nation, not just for one group of people, not just for white Americans, but for black Americans, Hispanics, Asians, uh, people of all religious backgrounds. I do believe that, you know, we are a model nation. There's no other nation that is, is as diverse as we are racially, uh, economically, in so many areas. It's just our chance to become a better nation so we can continue to lead in democratizing our world. We believe, we know that democracy is not a perfect form of government, but it is, we believe, the form of government, government that acknowledges our humanity, that is most agreeable with our humanity. People want to be free. People want to be responsible. People want to have control of their destiny and their outcomes. And democracy, in my opinion, and from my studying, is the, 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 the best form of government that acknowledges that humanity in all of us. Well, uh, Dr. Beasley, you're giving me goosebumps here. Um, and I, 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 so here's another question then. If you believe there is opportunity, as you've described, due to these challenging times, um, you know, when we look about, the, you know, we look forward around the concept of innovation, maybe it's educational innovation. I mean, I have anxiety and worry that we could see school districts, communities who are just dying to go back. You know, let's go back to a sense of normal, um, which by the way, might not be the right thing to do. This may be the right time to say, maybe normal shouldn't be our goal. So looking forward, thinking about opportunities for potential innovations, what sort of things do you, are you curious about, or are you exploring, or maybe hopeful for, um, in terms of, you know, maybe specific actions or changes that could produce better outcomes in the future, as opposed to just slipping back into, you know, the comfort and cozy of, you know, you know the past normal? You know, that's a great question, and I'll tell you a few things that I have been thinking about. Um, 
of course, within a school system, ensuring that we do an equity audit, ensuring that our policies are not the the impetus for our inequities, that they're not they're not resulting in inequities, ensuring that all of our students have access to a rigorous curriculum, competent, highly qualified, competent teachers, ensuring that we dismantle the systems that track students uh, based upon their zip codes or their their family history, dismantling any types of any type of policy or even procedure that would exclude kids for reasons that are beyond their control. I think that we need to start looking even at our post-secondary system and figure out a way to get our kids in college, not just based upon an SAT or ACT score, because you and I know that oftentimes that's, a, that's an outcome based upon, that speaks to the resources that kids have, not necessarily their ability. Correct. And so f- finding ways to review these 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 practices that we have become so um, so uh, comfortable with status quo practices and figuring out, OK, how do we get the kids who are from the low income, uh, not as resourced or connected families? How do we get those kids in college? realizing that their SAT, ACT scores oftentimes are not a reflection of their lack of ability, but just their lack of resources or access to whatever. So really looking at our systems at every level, the K-12 level, post-secondary level, to, to create opportunities for all kids. For example, if, if we know that a college education is the game changer for a poor kid, then we as a nation should ensure that all poor kids have access to get a what? College education. And it shouldn't be that poor kids have to borrow the most money in order to get an education. So I'm looking at what we can do at the K-12 level, the post-secondary level to dismantle, if you will, systems and structures that have contributed to the inequities that we're talking about right now. You know, you you use the word access, and um, and and I I agree with that. In fact, so much so that uh, I think sometimes there the, I know for a fact, having you know sat in in your seat, that some get really comfortable with the idea of well, wait a minute, you know, students of of poverty, they they have they have the chance, right? They can't they could if they wanted, and they would describe that as access and. Then, then you shifted and you said, you know, systems and structures, and there need to be systems and structures that almost do more than access, that actually not just promote, but, but move students. Because we know students have potential, regardless of sometimes what their present circumstance or, um, you know, that opportunity gap has demonstrated, right? So the system has to almost move them from here to here because we believe they can be successful when they get there, right? With the right support and the right structure, but there's got to be policies and systems that actually do it as opposed to say, now you have an opportunity, let's all cross our fingers and hope for some reason that we see something different even though we never have. Right. You know, if I could use this example, Jeff, you know, I'm African-American, as you know, and, and, and those who know me, 
I know. I often tell African-Americans that I interact with and, and have conversations about this subject with, for the most part, it's only been since 1965 where the laws have allowed African-Americans to participate in this democracy fully. But look at what African-Americans have done since 1965. We've built the middle class. Yes, we still have a, a, a large percentage of poverty as a, as a demographic group, but it's improving. Um, our educational rates have improved. We're closing the gap, many gaps. So just imagine where African-Americans would be had there not been systems prior to 1965 that prevented their full participation in this democracy. My point is, if we get serious about reviewing these systems, acknowledging that these systems are not only wrong, but they're immoral, and that they're not helpful to us as a democracy, dismantle those systems, just imagine where we could be as a nation. Look at where we are today with those systems in place. Imagine where we would be without those systems, if you will, repressing our possibilities and our prosperity for all groups in this country. Absolutely. And re repressing is the right word. I, I was talking to yesterday uh, a, a very impressive educational leader, a superintendent in Ohio, and we were talking about, um, you know, a conversation similar to this. And her point was extremely bold. As she said, if, if, if five years from now, we, we haven't used the current sense of urgency to change the systems, make dramatic change in um, the overall structure of how we educate our students um, and focused on systems and structures and policies relative to equity, then our leaders, and she was counting herself as one, should be either sued for malpractice or definitely fired. And that is yeah. such a, a um, phenomenal statement to make, and I totally agree with that. We have got to, we've got to use this as an opportunity to make better and different decisions. And you'll hear me use the word dismantle some systems. There are some systems that are just not worthy to be perpetuated. They should be totally annihilated and destroyed. They should be dismantled. There are some that should be reformed. There are some that should be created new, but we've got to be able to, as a nation, collectively say, no, we're better than this. We're not going to tolerate this any longer. We're not going to uh, redline communities of color. We're not going to um, divest of their businesses any longer. We're not going to um, fund our schools based upon property values, which contributes to a lack of equity. We're go we've got more than enough resources in this country to ensure that every poor kid has access to earn a college degree, whether it be an associate degree or a four-year degree. We have the capital. We've got to. We've got the political um, structure, if you will, to make it happen. It's just a matter of us making the decision to make it happen for our country. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful um, that we can do it if we seize this opportunity and we see the 
the possibilities of where we could be in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years as a nation. I'm telling you, Jeff, we could be in such a phenomenal, better place than where we are today. We certainly we certainly could. And, and someday, some way, I'm going to create a three-way conversation between the, the woman I was talking to yesterday and, and us. I, I think that you two would find each other very inspiring. And I'll tell you this, uh, Dr. Beasley, if, um, if, if, I could, if I could put money on, on this and, and, and make a bet on leaders that um, can and will make some dramatic changes and impact lives, um, I'd bet on you, my friend. So um, I, I, I really, I mean, the fact is you've, been willing to, you've already been willing to spend time with me and I really appreciate it. And let me just ask you this, because I want to be, val- you know, I want to value your time um, and your generosity. Is, is there anything that perhaps I, I didn't ask that maybe I should have? Well, I, I'll tell you this. Um, I don't know if there's a question that you, you did not ask, ask that you should have, but I'll, I'll say this, that as, as a leader in your role, I appreciate you creating these opportunities, these spaces for us to, to have these conversations, for us to, to think about the possibilities, to, to remain hopeful, but to be honest about what the challenges are and, and even share ideas as to areas that we, we can work on uh, short term and long term. So I'm, I'm hopeful and I thank you for betting on me uh, and I'm going to do my best, Jeff, to, to make sure that that bet is, is, is fruitful for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I know you are and um, I want to thank you once more. And I, 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 lo- I watched some of the silly things that that go viral um if only i could find a way to make uh this conversation specifically your um messaging and your words go viral i would and i will do my best to do so because um you you inspire and that's not just based upon what you say that is based upon your daily work and i know it's really really hard right now and you are um, keeping your head up and remaining positive, and that's your job, and I commend you for doing it. So um, thank you, Dr. Beasley, for being with us. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I know that you will enjoy this episode just as much as I have. So once again, this is Leading Education. I am Jeff Rose. Have a marvelous day. Thanks for listening to Leading Education with Jeff Rose, hosted by Jason Pace and Jeff Rose, and recorded at Serendipity Labs in Alpharetta, Georgia. We are produced and edited by Carson Pace. Our theme music is by Full Year of Panic. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.